This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Dylan Mosley, head brewer for Civil Life Brewing in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple of years ago, or maybe three or four years ago, I ended up uh, in the brewery here with uh, our co-founder of Craft Beer Brewing, John Bolden. Uh, we had stopped by, we'd seen uh, uh, Cascale from Civil Life on tap at another another bar in town and thought, oh, you know, if there's a brewery making Cascale, I want to check that place out. We thought, oh, we'll stop by for a round. And we walked in here not knowing what to expect, never having been here before. And uh, somehow ended up spending the rest of the night in this place. <laughs> uh, it's such a comfortable pub environment and, you know, the beer focus of civil life on small, sessionable, but flavorful beers is something that uh, just kind of, you know, captured uh, my excitement, entertainment, and, uh, uh, and uh you know, I've been a fan ever since. I uh, got super excited when Civil Life started to can. Uh, yeah. When you guys started shipping us some beer to taste, it was a, a strange thrill now to be able to taste that American brown ale out uh, in Colorado where we are. And I've got a pint of it in my hand right now that I'm going to continue to drink uh, while we talk about brewing right here. But uh, before we get started, uh, you know, we are going to talk about brewing flavorful, sessionable beers. I think sure. that's just such a... Um, awesome focus for the brewery and you will do it so well um, across some different nationalities but with that common focus of making low ABV beers almost the entire tap list or the entire tap list I think is below six percent or somewhere in that realm yeah we um, especially when we first started um, we certainly didn't have a beer that was really even approaching six percent yeah and uh we've since uh decided that we can afford to uh throw a few beers into the mix that are are more in the six to low sixes um so a big beer for you is six and a half percent <laughs> it is it is it really Let's, is uh we can talk a little bit more about that in a second but uh but first as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller unit. And stay connected to the heart of craft beer and the revolutionary tastemakers behind every can and bottle. Download the free Tavor app to get highly rated independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Recently featured beers include Within Us from Anchorage, Stargate Nectarine from Black Project, King Sue from Toppling Goliath, Ninja vs. Unicorn from Pipeworks, and Beer to Pay from Side Project right here in St. Louis where we are today. Get $10 in beer money today with code BREWING. So Dylan, tell me a little bit about your arc in beer. You know, you uh, you were a home brewer. You were working in a bar. Yeah. Um, how, where did the uh, where did the love of beer come, and uh, where how did that uh, brewing experience develop to the point where you are now running a commercial brewing operation here? Well, it um, it began very specifically with a grocery store um, in my local neighborhood when I lived out west. Um, I had moved there um, for graduate school. 
And uh, I'd come from, <clears throat> pardon me, I'd come from St. Louis um, and found myself in Seattle. And uh, the local grocery store had um, what looks like now a regular beer aisle, but this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Sure, sure. And I, I hadn't seen anything like that before. Sure. And I didn't know. That was know. like my first experience. <laughs> I, I, I went to college in Memphis. And, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, then went out to, uh, I was like probably 1996, went out to Boulder, Colorado, yeah. and went into, you know, Liquor Mart or one of these right. supermarkets. Like, what? I didn't know that all this beer existed at yeah, the time. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought I was being pretty cutting edge drinking Guinness. <laughs> and, uh, sure. Um, and um, so when I saw this beer, I, I just needed to know what it was. And uh, sure. so started grabbing bottles and. Um, eventually became, you know, um, kind of uh, grocery store friends with the beer buyer there. And uh, he gave me some great selections. And uh, I just, um, it was at that point in my life that um, I realized I didn't know what beer was. And that was really fascinating. Um, and uh, so that's really what got me into homebrewing. Homebrewing um, definitely helped bring me to this point. Um, but honestly, it was the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start brewing and, uh, did you keep brewing throughout, uh, you know, a, a career and kind of hospitality after that? Um, so I, my first couple of homebrews were dramatically unsuccessful and, um, I really didn't have any good information. I knew that I wanted to do it. Um, and, uh, so, but they were really bad <laughs> it was really sure, bad sure and it's a very um, common story <laughs> so i kind of just uh, we ended up moving to um uh, well we ended up moving across uh, the states and found ourselves in a home that didn't really have uh, a great spot to brew so i once again just wasn't brewing and then we moved back to st louis and i had this really big house with this giant basement and suddenly i'm like i can brew and um started doing that and uh at the same time uh kind of meandered my way over to um a wine bar that uh jake hafner who who owns civil life he was running uh the wine bar and uh, or owning and running the wine bar and uh, i ended up working for him and uh you know my enthusiasm for beer rubbed off on the wine bar and um we we found ourselves being kind of um uh one of the hubs in st louis for people that were getting interested in beer so how did you guys decide to take that love and excitement for beer and then turn it into this brewery because that's a big step going from running a wine bar (laughs) that people are excited about beer with to saying hey let's start a production brewery make a lot of this stuff and then open our own tap room uh, with this kind of pubby feel within this larger warehouse. Well, Jake has a much uh, more fun story about all that. My story is that Jake told me that's what we were doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Hey, but, fair enough. Fair enough. But, uh, he credits, you weren't going to say no. <laughs> he credits um, a homebrew party that we had um, where, you know, our uh, our friends were there and uh, the beer was 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 coming out all right and um he in the back of his mind had an idea that he didn't want to be in the wine bar for the rest of his life and um it just i don't know it's that whole snowball thing one thing leads to another um but when he brought it up you know uh you know mike uh the other founder of civil life was working there as well and we're both looking at each other like 
what is this really gonna happen and like well who's gonna brew and he's like well you guys are <laughs> okay well i guess we better learn how <laughs> so i took um i took some courses at siebel and uh did as much uh research as i could by just harassing other local brewers about what i needed to learn and uh I've, i'm still learning <laughs> for sure i think we all are Talk to me a little bit. You know, you, you Jake envisions this this crazy idea for this brewery, yeah. and you all get together and build a beer program for it. Mm-hmm. And somehow, in the midst of this, and you know, what what is this? Uh, you know, 2013, 2012, somewhere in there. Well, we're we're in our eighth year now. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So yeah. 2011, then. Yeah. Well, I guess. Um, yeah. So we're in our eighth year. Uh, it took us about uh, a year to uh, get the building improved, and we had been kind of working toward it for about a year and a half before that okay so you know the beer world is a little different you know thing at that time absolutely it certainly wasn't as taproom focused as it is right now wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily as hospitality focused Mm -hmm. it was definitely you know more a little more production beer focused and the idea was if you launched a brewery you had to be kind of distributing beer in some sort of form or fashion sure um you come up with an idea that seems almost like you know commercial suicide (laughs) <laughs> to you know, make a whole bunch of small session beers because you know the other trend at that time was big beers. You know, craft beer was right. differentiating itself from the mainstream by being more extreme. Yes, you know, by being more bitter, by being bigger, by being more imperial, and you know, stone and arrogant bastard right. were you know casting themselves against a you know this corporate beer, or whatever. Yeah, you know. And at the same time, I mean, here you are in the shadow of, of Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis. And you're like, hey, you know, we're going to make small, sessionable beers that people can drink mm-hmm. a lot of. That seems weird to me. Well, um, I will agree with you. Um, and in point of fact, I think we saw ourselves initially maybe thinking that we would end up with a beer uh, portfolio that looked a little bit more like Founders. Um, okay. And through home brewing and through our own uh, you know you reach in the fridge and you grab the beer that you bought um, rather than the beer you thought you should get you know uh, it just ended up being that um, lower ABV beer um, that um, really wasn't we weren't inventing anything um, but rather maybe we were just putting something forward that had always been there but maybe just was on the mantle with too many other things and you take some of those other things off and suddenly you see it again and uh, I really looked at um, Schlafly as um, uh, a brewery that had um, done a lot of things right up until that point and um, especially with their kind of outreach um, to the Midwest um, both in terms of what they were actively doing just out on the street and I really even appreciated just the simplicity of their bottle labels where you know it's like uh, pills is a red label and it says pills are on it and then Schlafly <laughs> and so I felt like there was an earnesty in you know what you were reaching for and so when we kept brewing and brewing and brewing here at Civil Life we kind of found out that we were making Civil Life beer and one of the things that I think we've discovered is that uh, people will tend to trust a civil life tap without necessarily knowing what it is. You know, like um, they're willing to give, if they see our tap out somewhere, 
I think they feel like they already have a head start in knowing what they want, you know, because, uh, how do you earn that? How does that well, happen? It doesn't just happen overnight and it doesn't happen by magic, yeah. you know, Seriously, um, yeah. there's a lot of reinforcement that that takes mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, you know, building that idea of consistency, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly every, something every brewer wants to have, but it's yeah. not something that every brewery has. Well, and you, you, you can't, uh, discount, uh, the stars being just right, you know? Um, but I, I do think, um, like we got a lot of traction with our Brown, um, our American Brown. And, um, I guess two things about that beer is it was one of the very first beers that we brewed here. And again, going back to homebrewing, I'd only, only ever brewed 20 gallons of beer before. And then we started brewing here and it was a little, uh, heart-wrenching um but that first taste of uh brown beer out of the tank when it was far enough along to be considered much more finished than unfinished um i thought to myself man we're i think we're gonna make it (laughs) um this i like this beer that was your first batch that was uh, that's that's a good time yeah um uh, you know i was you know i was happy with it and um you know, we got a lot of traction out in the market with it for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, it's a decidedly mm-hmm. unsexy style. I mean, brown ale couldn't mm-hmm. feel more like dad's craft beer from the yeah. 1980s, 1990s. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you know, and I, and I think when I think brown ale, I, you know, you still go back to like, you know, Pete's Wicked Ale and, yeah. or Pete's Wicked Brown. And some of these, you know, I mean, it's just feels. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm drinking it right now and absolutely loving every sip of this thing and not exactly sure why tell me why i love this beer so much i think it's because we use brown malt okay um and so brown malt is it a commercially available brown malt or it, it okay. is um you know with beer you've got just like you have four simple ingredients there, there are a lot of different ways you can make beer uh appear and there are different ways you can uh, change the, the, the flavor of beer. And one of the things that brown malt does is it changes the appearance and the flavor. Okay. And I think that a lot of, um, I think a lot of mistakes that have been made in and around certain styles is uh, moving the color to where you want it. But using the wrong choices to get to that, like you're, you're getting that color, but how are you getting it? You know, like... Uh, you can use a little bit of black malt and you can get red. You can use a lot of other types of malt and get red, you know, like, so it's kind of like you're at the paint store, you know, a little dabble do you. And all of a sudden you've got a completely different blue on your hands. And so with, with brown malt, um, thank you for using, I use the pigment analogy mm. all the time <laughs> and you just brought it up without me having to raise it. I, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. No problem. I'll take a thousand dollars with that glycol they were mentioning earlier. Um, so, uh, well, talk to me a little bit about that then, you know, so, so, um, you know, obviously there are flavor, you know, contributions from malt when you're building. Yes. Uh, you know, kind of malt forward beer like this. Yes. You know, there are dangers on both sides. There's dangers to building it with not enough character where you're just pushing color. Mm-hmm. There are dangers to, you know, doing it with something like, you know, too much caramel, you know, forward malt, which just creates a kind of cloying sweetness and, yeah. you know, a difficulty. In, like, you know, how do you, how do you 
ride that line between those things because one of the things I really enjoy about this beer is it has that substantial malt character but it, and it has some of that sweetness but it mm-hmm. still seems to clean that sweetness up as you move through the beer and, and finish that sip yeah um, yeah I, I wish I could explain it um, more concisely but um, you know like finding those moments of sympathy in a beer where you've um you've taken these different components and you've compressed them into a can or a bottle or a keg or whatever you do have to kind of have uh enough experience with enough types of malt from numerous vendors to really kind of know that like uh you know well this maltster's brown is not this one you know like there's huge differences just because they say brown and just because their SRM doesn't seem to be that different, uh, they're very different. And uh, we have the, the luxury of being able to purchase malt from, you know, lots of small and medium-sized maltsters. Um, that gives us a huge advantage in uh, not giving the samey samey. You know, um, when you're building beer out of a silo, uh, it's real hard to change beers up because you've made a commitment to a price point on a grain and buddy you're going to taste it um so we have at this point in time uh we still like you know i'm looking at the malt area right now and you know we've got malt from uh from all over the world and um some of it is um some of it's a little habitual i'll 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 give you that there's certain maltsters i like um, and certain Who do you ones. like and why? Well, um, one of the ones that I make no bones about liking at all, I, I love Thomas Fawcett. Um, sure. I've, I've used a lot of their stuff. Um, there's, uh, uh, they've, uh, I've had virtually no problems uh, with purchasing their malt. Um, they've, um, They've been a really critical uh, portion of a number of the beers that we came out of the gate with. Um, and, and I think that they've done a, a really good job. Uh, I like their malt a lot. Um, conversely, um, I've lately really been liking some malt uh, from a newer maltster here in the States uh, called Proximity. Sure. Um, I hadn't used their malt much um, until like the last six or maybe eight months um and we've been using more and more of it and um i've been pretty impressed with what we've used so far um you know like it's malt is a funny thing because um i do think you kind of get what you pay for and unfortunately there's some built-in costs if you're buying german malt or english malt that if somehow that malt was magically produced here, it would be cheaper. Sure. Um, so you're paying for a boat, you know, I get it. Um, but I think also too, like there's, uh, there are a lot of things that build upon other things that you don't always find out about and you don't always know where these little experiences or where these little twinkles in people's eyes came from. But, and I think all things in the world are like that. And sure. um, so there's a reason why Thomas Fawcett makes good malt, but it's not all just science. You know? Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> so 
explain to me how you go through this uh, discovery process, you know, yeah. uh, figuring out how those malts work for you in these beers when you're brewing large production batches mm-hmm. can be, a, you know, an expensive learning process. And yeah. as a home brewer, you don't necessarily have, you're not going to be buying 55 pound bags of some of these, you know, specialty malts in order, you know, right. you, you can't even buy them, but uh, right. you know, even if you could, you wouldn't be able to purchase that kind of volume. Yeah. So talk to me about that, you know, discovery process where you figure out and develop these ideas of malt and mm-hmm. the flavors that are within them, you know, that you then bring into your beer. Well, um, so we don't have any kind of a pilot system. So everything gets run through 20 barrels at a time or we just don't make it. Now, we have taken some uh, batches and, and scaled them back to like a 15 barrel batch and things like that. Um, that usually has less to do with our comfort level and, and going for it and more to do with just how much beer do we need. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm a huge, huge uh, believer in uh, practicing small things. Um, it's a, it's a vital part of, you know, becoming better at something. Sure. But there's also a part of me that realizes that if you want to be a home run hitter, like you can't just go to a batting cage and practice swinging a bat because you get into a game and things are different. And so if your practice is playing games, I bet you're going to hit the ball more you know, than if you just go to the batting cages. Now you need the batting cages to, you know, your elbow's not right, you know, uh, you know, lots of reasons, you know, sure, but, sure. um, I really tweak like your form and I kind of yeah, control tweak it a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I like brewing everything kind of whole hog, but, uh, our batting cage would be more like, well, I'm, we're interested in using this malt. Um, let, let's say, uh, so in the case of uh, proximity, I was interested in a couple of their base malts um, because I was unhappy uh, with working with another base malt. I liked the malt itself, but working with it, I didn't like. And um, so we started kind of sneaking in a little bit of proximity just to see if we could ever find a difference. And we got it to a point where we couldn't find a difference. Um, we still liked uh, everything that we had previously liked about the beer, and the experience of working with the grain was a lot higher. Um, also, uh, if it's not like a base grain, and we're just trying to see how we can kind of get it into some other recipes, uh, we'll come up with a brand new uh, beer that we haven't brewed before, but we've used like say Maris Otter. We've used a ton of it. We know what it's going to do. Now we take this new malt, we throw it in there and we see how it works against Maris Otter. Um, we kind of did that lately with uh, ordinary bitter, uh, that we just brewed. And, um, it's a, it's a good way to like take some things that have been familiar in other places and put them into a new match and kind of see how they see how they really work that out. Um, but again, like, um, I probably do have some habits uh, when it comes to making recipes, so it's it's really nice to um, have other people uh, work either independently or with with you on recipes. So sure, you, sure. You, you know, you know, fall into that. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but first, with over 200 years of combined experience in the craft beverage industry. Country Malt Group's dedicated sales and support staff understand the importance of excellent ingredients, product knowledge, and expertise in making great beer. 
Country Malt Group's mission is to provide the products and services you need while making the process of ordering ingredients easy. The focus is to inspire your best craft. Order online at shop.countrymalt.com. Also, balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, that's 855-692-5274. Or visit ClarionLubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of these kind of specifics and and some of the flavor uh, contributions that you find from some of these malts, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in in particular. Because I always find it fascinating to to discuss with brewers how they articulate in their mind some of the contributions some of these ingredients make. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like, you know, talking to a chef about how... You know, their locally sourced, you know, ingredient that they get from this one person in this one place here uh, makes such a difference over what, you know, is generally available in the supermarket that other folks make. You know, some of those Mm -hmm. things become, you know, again, you think it's, you know, like talking to an artist about how they think about color. You know, it's these are the things that feed into this. But somehow, you know, the uh, what happens when those pieces are pushed together is greater than this individual sum. Yes. or each of the individual ingredients by themselves. So talk to me a little bit about how when you are tasting you know, some of these malts, you know, specific malts, um, those flavors come across and how you find you know, some of those combinations working very well. Um, you, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, not only kind of familiarizing myself with uh, what uh, BJCP would like a beer to be, but I also, you know, like the, like the like porter. Um, I also think about, okay, well, what's, what's important to me about Porter? And um, I always do use uh, BJCP because I like there to be a framework um, that I can talk to other people and we can be at least sure. on the same page with some of the things we're talking about. But, you know, BJCP is not good for everything. Um, but, um, you know, like when I think about Porter, um, like I just immediately think of a beer that is too difficult to discern much about it (laughs) you know like it's um it's just um a marriage of almost too many similar things that you you kind of you get lost in it um so when we've built our porter it's the kitchen sink beer around here like it's uh it's a real chore to mill that thing in because you know you'd love it <laughs> it'd be great if you could walk over there open up 10 55 pound sacks and throw them all in and there's your recipe but you know porter's not that animal it's like you got to open up everything and and it's uh are you measuring things out and opening things oh, how, many, yeah. how many different malts and uh um and how do you kind of say balance uh you know talk to me a little bit about how you balance like base malt with uh some mm-hmm. of the various specialty malts or caramel malt contributions in there. Well, I think um, I, I think there's like we were talking about color. Um, I went to school to be a, a painter, and uh, one of the first things you learn about painting is that brown is a very easy color to make because you can make it with three colors, and you always inadvertently make brown. <laughs> yes, so, yes, you do. Uh, you learn that clarity is uh, very important. So. 
to not make brown is more challenging um, and to make specific colors. Um, when, uh, when we're thinking, or when I'm thinking, I'll say it, I'm thinking about uh, making a malt structure for a, for a beer, there's always a few different ways you can get the color. There's always a few different ways you can introduce flavor. But there's only certain ways that you can get the color and the flavor to operate kind of fluidly together. And I think that um, I've had my share of beer where, uh, you know, you drink it and you're like, oh, now I know what Caramel 90 tastes like, (laughs) you know. um, And I think sometimes the specificity of ingredients is is too much. Like, oh, yep, that's uh, that's Cascade. That's all this beer is just a bunch of Cascade. If you love Cascade or you love C90, then you found your beer. But for almost everybody else, um, you kind of, you don't want the end of the story before you started it, you know? Like, you need a little something else there. So I don't, I think I'd probably spend a lot more time thinking about what's in the middle of the beer rather than um, base malt and finishing touches. Um, So it's pretty rare that um we have uh i'm losing myself a little bit here um i feel like in in a few of our beers that um that we've made recently i've discovered that i have a much better handle on selecting fewer malts to get the same job done that maybe a couple years ago i would have maybe thrown another couple in and kind of muddied it up a little bit um so I'm learning more and more about how to keep things kind of clean, um, but getting, getting that flavor in the middle of the beer to kind of be a little bit more than just screaming at you with base malt. Um, I don't know that I answered your question. <laughs> I'm going to keep pushing on this a little bit too. You know, so, yeah. so in terms of that, what does that look like percentage-wise? And, oh, sure. and how are you, you know, in a sense, kind of you know, in something like this porter, when we can use that, for example, or mm-hmm. the, the American brown, building different layers you know yeah. and, and I'll, I'll i would love to ask you what exactly you're using if you don't want to answer that i understand <laughs> you know but, yeah. but what do those layers look like you know you build sure. your base model layer what's your next layer what's your layer after that what's your layer mm-hmm. after that and what's you know this this smallest top layer that's adding that kind of uh you, you know uh you know that yeah. certain thing that wouldn't be there without it yeah well i mean porter's a good place to go back to again um you know uh with Porter, um, because we wanted there to be a lot going on in that beer, um, we, we certainly, you certainly have to transition yourself into thinking about um, moving that color to a point where you, you do get uh, kind of that super, super rich brown note that's really black, you know, to, to the eye. But um, I... I spent, um, me and Mike and, uh, I guess it was me and Mike that pretty much made that beer. Uh, we spent a lot of time incorporating, um, touches of things that we felt like, uh, you might not taste it, but that kind of needed to be there. Um, put a little brown malt in it, um, not to make a brown porter, but just to kind of get some, get some, uh, get some flavor in there that we knew existed in brown malt but it's not it's not running up to the tip of your tongue uh because it's wrapped around some amber malt that is uh not far off in color um but dramatically different in taste 
so if you can kind of find um, when you say dramatically different, what's that dramatic difference for you? So the the brown malt that we source uh, from Thomas Fawcett um, has um, kind of a, a little bit of sweetness to it, um, but it has a, a nice, real kind of firm, uh, almost kind of a, a bark, kind of uh, outdoorsy uh, kind of uh, camp coffee kind of a, an attribute to okay. it. Um, the, um, the amber malt is actually pretty abrasive. Um, and it's not actually a malt that I suggest to people because you have to, um, you have to underuse it. Um, if you, if you use it in even the ratios that, um, they suggest, um, you're not going to like the beer. (laughs) Um, but why not? Um, it's just so in your face. It's like that, it's like that friend that you, you keep hanging out with but like an hour into it you're like now i remember why i don't want to do this <laughs> um you know the, like it, it, so we use that malt in our amber um again make brown brown beer with brown malt and make amber beer with amber malt but it's just a touch it's just enough to um uh to get that kind of bite um that wouldn't have otherwise been there because to, to get amber malt i think uh a lot of times amber beer again it's mostly color you know it's like moving moving just beyond orange into something real brassy something kind of red you can get there with caramel malt but caramel malt's not amber to me you know amber and and i'm forming a lot of my opinions about beer through uh uh, kind of antiquated notions of beer um i think um some of the most interesting beer i've ever had has been either homebrew or uh, fairly rustically made uh, beer. And I think a lot of times uh, commercial beer can give you what you thought you wanted, but then it's really, you're left with not a whole lot. Um, So I've always gravitated toward things that had some slight eccentricities about them uh, that were maybe slightly undefinable. I mean, actually, uh, Jake just uh, brought me a beer uh, here in town uh, from Urban Chestnut uh, that was, um, I forget the style of beer that they were emulating, but they were using um, green tea and uh, I believe they used maybe even some sake yeast in it. And uh, I didn't know it was from them. And uh, I had some. And while it wasn't like, it wasn't a beer in the sense that uh, I would stay with that beer for long periods of time, but I thought it was really an interesting beer. And it wasn't just like one of these beers that you're interested in for the moment. And then you're like, okay, I'm ready to be interested in something else. I could be interested in that beer for a long time. Um, yeah. it, it, to me, it wouldn't be something that is infinitely drinkable, um, in the sense that I just keep having that beer over and over again, but it was a really good experience. I, I thought that was a really unique thing. So, I'm trying to. We're, we're still building here. Uh-huh. You know, we've we've yeah. we've built on our base malt and we've yeah. added some brown malt. You know, how in that sense are you adding some of these kind of perceptible sweetness without too much and still maintaining, you know, that crispness, you know, of these ba- and drinkability yeah. for some of these small well, beers. I think you have to be now. You have and to building that eccentric sure. character, you know, as yeah. well that still helps them stand out and be their own beers. Um, I think. 
now is kind of the point where you have to start being careful about things and and letting um, letting recipes uh, kind of become what they may um, without trying to overthink it. Um, you know, um, I uh, there was an expression that uh, one of our uh, previous brewers uh, used, and I'm, <laughs> I'm trouble having trouble coming up with it, but. If he listens to this, he'll be like, "There it is." Um, but I, I think you um, like it with the brown beer. Um, that beer wouldn't be uh, nearly the shell of itself without Cascade. Um, I really feel strongly that all those malts that were put into that beer were meant to come up against Cascade. If that hadn't happened, you wouldn't have that beer. Um, and again, it's, it's, and that's why it's a little hard to talk about like building recipes because you're really not building a recipe without thinking about your water, without thinking about your yeast, without thinking about your hops. Like these things are all part of what's going to end up being the beer. And, you know, so, uh, if you're looking for, you know, a slightly lower pH and you don't get it in your mash and you end up with something higher may not be the end of the world but something will be left over from that experience you know um you know it's uh, not entirely important that you weigh your hops at least in uh, at our size down to the gram you know uh but you need to be pretty close <laughs> you know and as a home brewer um you know building these recipes uh is super challenging because measurement is very much against you you know um it's it's much harder to uh try to um repeat things when you know you're 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 really the percentage are, difference you, in yeah, one ounce you're really you know, taking right. a little pinch out you yeah, know like that's yeah. that's tough you know here we have some uh some some wiggle room um but um you know, with the, and, and be going back to the porter, um, I, I think that um, we kind of, I kind of keep saying we, I kind of have a little bit of a rule with certain beers and porter would be one of them is if you're going to be complicated about it, um, try not to be double complicated by like, oh, if it's got, you know, some you know, low end crystal, it needs some high end crystal. Or if it, you know, uh, if it's got, you know, some colored malt, then it needs some, some, some black malt, you know, like I, I think sometimes, you know, if you have two crystals that are real close, uh, but they're from different vendors, you can start to input some things into the, uh, how the beer turns out that, Again, you're talking about real finesse here, and maybe I'm imagining some of this stuff, but uh, it's, I, I feel it tastes, like... It tastes real to me, so... Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, that's all you got is, right. uh, you know, you drink the beer and, and you, you put it on untapped, <laughs> whatever it is that people do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting um, idea, though, that, uh, you know, you're building some malt complexity not mm. by trying to build a broad range of all of these different malts, but by also using some, you know, different but very close, uh, you know, uh, kind of yeah. shades of difference there that do still, no matter, you know, how, whether they're from different vendors or whatnot, kind yeah. of add some different flavors. Yeah, well, and, you know, this is um, this is very common knowledge, but, like, uh, our American brown is built from uh, malt from across the world. Intentionally. 
we could have made an, uh, a brown beer with all North American malt, but to me, that's not American. You know, like America is all over the world. That's where we came from. You know, and uh, or at least a lot of us. And so it was important to me philosophically for the American brown to have, you know, as not as many malts as we could from other places, not to just turn it into, a, oh, well, we got, you know, malt from Argentina and Russia, you know, like that, that starts to be a little bit uh, too uh, literal. Um, and probably slightly pedantic. Yeah, you know, probably wouldn't do the beer really any favors other than to give you a slightly fancier story. Um, but, uh, you know, what grows together goes together. And, uh, you know, when we do uh, styles of beer where we're going to claim uh, an English um, theme or a Germanic theme or whatever, we, we tend to use uh, much, much uh, more percentage of malt from those countries. I don't think we have anything in our portfolio that would say English or German or, or, or whatever without more than or less than 70% from that country. Um, and that's kind of been something I've just decided we need to do. It's an interesting one. I see brewers all the time naming beers that way. This is our German pills because it's made with German hops and, and German malts. Mm-hmm. Or this is our Czech pills because it's made with Czech hops and Czech, you know, or, yeah, and, uh, Czech malt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, the danger with American brewers is making beers that have these names on them that don't bear a resemblance to those beers in the countries that they come from. 100%. You know, how do you, you know, building that to where if you're putting a country's name on it, it also in some way reflects that, that country's brewing tradition. And, yeah. you know, even though those traditions are very diverse and there's not, it's not a monocultural, you know, tradition in any kind of sense. Um, you know, but it, if, if it doesn't feel relatable as that kind of thing, mm-hmm. Um, you know, is just naming it that way because the ingredients are from that place. You mm-hmm. know, is that sensible? How much are you trying to and tasting some of those inspirational beers from some of from the countries that you're trying yeah. to you know kind of bring and make your own? Well, um, and I don't intend for the answer to be any kind of a cop out, but um, but there's going to be a little bit of that um, when we do um, like we have German pills. Sure. Um, you know, we don't have a fancy um, machine that breaks down water. Um, we have the city of St. Louis, you know, running through our veins here. And we don't spend lots of... Is the water not good? I mean, I hear they make some Pilsner here. So the, the water Or a beer is, they call Pilsner, at least. <laughs> and they have those fancy water breakdown machines. <laughs> I guarantee it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know... Our brewing water straight out of the tap minus uh, some uh, treatment for chlorine or chloramines and uh, some membrane filtration to kind of sparkle things up a little bit more. We do that. Uh, We do some water additions uh, for mash chemistry and things like that. But we will never have the city of, uh, you know, Dublin's water. We're never going to have Berlin's water. So... And that's just a, that's almost everything that you need uh, to put a beer onto the correct path. Um, I think that you could do far worse than emulating the water 100% correctly and using the wrong grains. I think, I think you would still probably end up being more close 
to getting something right. The water is more important I, than your malt bill, huh? I, I 100% believe that. Um, now, obviously, you're not going to want to make a brown pilsner. Um, and certainly, if you're trying to make a pilsner with a pale uh, malt base rather than a pills malt base, you, you're still not helping yourself. But I would still argue that, like, you know, we... Uh, like I said, we don't do uh, water breakdown uh, or, um, you know, we don't build water. Um, so, but to me, that's okay because it's, it's kind of one of the only things that our city can really offer us as a brewery is the water. And it's a great thing to offer. Like, we've got really good water. Um, but it, it does mean that our, you know, Czech-style pills isn't going to um, be the same pills you have in, uh, when, when you're abroad. Um, and, and so there's going to be some differences. Um, now when you talk about other breweries doing this too, um, my main complaint, if I have a complaint is that, um, uh, a lot of times not only will a brewery say it's Czech pills, but then they'll still hop it like an American beer, <laughs> you know? And then it's like, okay, well, now you just wanted to be invited to the Czech pills party <laughs> and, um, and, and it's okay. Like, you know, I, I never I mean, want, it sounds like a cool party for a, me, but yeah, yeah, you know, it would be a pretty cool party. Um, and that, you know, that's one thing that, um, I think American breweries, uh, have in their, um, it's like their ace in the hole is that we really can do anything and we can call it whatever we want, you know, like it's, that's, that's our, that's our shtick, right? You know, you go into a grocery store now and there's, there's all kinds of beer with all kinds of names on it. And, um, I don't, uh, it's hard to know what to do with that too. Um, but, uh, you know, there's definitely some better and worse examples, um, you know, out there in the world. And, uh, I, I think, I think for us, um, one of the big benefits to keeping things like relatable in the sense that this is our English pale, this is our American pale, this is our, our Dortmunder. It gives the customer at least a focal point. Um, whether or not they judge how close we got to their mind's eye, that's up to them. I'll never have that control. Um, and I don't want it. You know, we made the beer that we, I hope that we made the beer that we wanted to make. Um, and I think largely, um, we've been successful with that mission. Um, we've definitely had some beer where like, eh, let's not brew that one for a little bit, you know, let's give it a rest. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's come back to that. Um, and you know, uh, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about yeast and pivot a little <laughs> bit there. So, you know, you are brewing, you know, with again, this kind of mode of, six six and a half and lower beers yep. but that means you're embracing a range of kind of you know uh you know styles that range from you know traditional british style beers german style beers czech style beers etc you know that's mm -hmm. a broad range of yeast that you're potentially pulling into the brew house uh you yeah. know and from a commercial standpoint that can also be a kind of a costly approach to take talk to me a little bit about yeah. how you manage some of these and think about yeast and you know and kind of you know maybe push yeast in different directions in order to 
uh, deliver flavors, even mm-hmm. if it may not may not may not be, you know, that same kind of traditional yeast that might be used in those beers. Yeah. Um, so we have at this point in time, we've kind of uh, without putting a stamp on it, we've kind of dedicated ourselves to certain strains. We've got a lager strain that we really like. Uh, we've got an American strain that we really, really like. We've got a pair of English strains um, as well, and um, et cetera. And um, you, you really are completely accurate when you talk about um, commercially things get a little screwball with yeast. Um, yeast is very expensive. And um, it's for better or for worse. Oh, I mean, you can look at GABF awards and see breweries <laughs> that won medals in certain categories that are brewing that with a completely different yeast that yes. no one would ever suspect that they, unless they told people that they were brewing that with. You know, it's a very right. commonplace thing. But using those brew house uh, magic, you know, and some of your tools, mm. you can get yeast to perform in specific ways that does different things than it may be known for. Yeah, um, and that's. Um, you know, that's a whole part of um, the alchemy of beer making that is still pretty unknown to me. You know, we we do, you know, we do the whole stress thing on wheat beer. Um, you know, we've got a few beers that we know they operate better under-pitched or over-pitched or a little more oxygen, uh, a little less oxygen. Um, but... You know, the, uh, the simple fact that, you know, you're making far more yeast in a batch of beer than you purchased. It's the only kind of renewable resource in the brewery that's making you money. And so a lot of times the convenience factor on the financial end of things to ride that yeast for all it's worth is, um, is, is a real thing. And, um, you know, I've been to a lot of places where... You know, again, you get into this whole idea of uh, samey, samey, and uh, I get it, you know, um, yeast is expensive, but, um, you know, uh, it's important, just as it is to find that brown malt that you really like for brown beer, it's important to find that yeast that you think works sympathetically with what you're trying to do. And there are definitely times where uh, I wonder if, you know, such and such beer uh, would be better with, you know, hey, they've got, you know, 10 other lager strains that, you know, I'd like, like to try. But at what, at what point commercially can you start committing to these things where it's like, well, you know, uh, now we don't have a, a lab. Um, you know, we do some simple things here like, you know, counting yeast and uh, we have a protocol of sending uh, product for testing and analysis in another lab that's not here but um, you know we're not growing we're not growing yeast up um, which we've talked about and that would definitely open some avenues in terms of uh, flexing out our yeast portfolio in the same way that we have the same ability to do with uh, with our malt. Um, we've talked about it. Yeah. Um, but a yeast plant takes up room and resources sure. as sure. well. Um, but I am I am pretty glad that we, as a tap room, can ordinarily offer three to four yeast strains at any given time on the on the board. I, it, it's it's really. Um, it's so much better uh, on the side of the person drinking 
to have not only the spectrum go from lower ABV to higher ABV, from you know pale yellow to black, but also have some of these flavor compounds and mouthfeels that you can only get through yeast. Um, so from a pub perspective, I think it's dramatically important. Talk to me a little bit about yeast and uh, malt interaction, mm-hmm. you know, and some of, uh, you know, the, the ways that yeast that you use may interact differently with sure. some of the malts. Well, How you think about malt in a way that can produce some flavors that yeast can have fun with. So, um, and I'll, I, I hope I come back to that. Uh, we recently installed um, a filter and previous to that, everything had just been run from tank to tank into a keg and into a glass. And we had some beer that I didn't really think suffered for it. And then we had some other beer that, you know, always kind of was like, ah, that, that's, that should be cleaner. Um, yeah. But the time frame wasn't allowing it. Um, and uh, we, bought, we got a filter. And um, I was, and still am, super impressed with it. Um, I didn't realize I was going to be one of these guys, um, given the fact that I do like myself some pretty rustic stuff. And the idea of spinning yeast out or uh, filtering it out, you know, there's the whole line of thought that, you know, you're taking something out of the beer and that should have been there or, you know, you're, you're stripping flavor or all these things. And I really think it's really the opposite. Um, I think that beer that hasn't been filtered as a general rule, not as a, you know, this isn't coming down from the heavens or anything. Um, as a general rule, beer that has not been filtered, you're, you, as much as you're leaving the flavor in, you're masking other flavors. And those other flavors don't have a chance to come out. Case in point, I think the American Brown is um, definitely a better beer after filtration. Um, the yeast on it, I think, was kind of uh, rounding some points out in the beer that I think are just a little more happening now um i think just on a purely superficial level uh a few of our beers just they look better you know and uh i've never been too down on beer that was a little too hazy or or whatnot but i've definitely been served some beer where i'm like (laughs) that could have used at least another some period of time (laughs) sure you know sure um and uh so i think the um I think the benefits that we've seen through filtration in terms of uh, taking some flavors that uh, have been in the beer but getting them to come out more has uh, helped, again, smaller ABV beer, more flavor. That's a good thing, right? Um, so I've been a really big fan of that. Um, I kind of forgot what you originally Talking asked. Talking about yeast interacting yeast with, uh, with malt. Um, so... I I don't know exactly how to answer that except to say that um, we've we've been able to uh, brew the same exact malt bill with different yeasts a few times and all I can say is everything you ever read about it is totally right <laughs> like um, there are massive um, and it's not just the the two flavors are like just different. Like um, we had a so our beer, our British bitter, is the same beer as a beer we call proper pint, 
but they're done with uh, the two different English strains that we use. And um, in one, you get really familiar with the clean quality of the malt, but then the hot of the uh, the the yeast throws uh, kind of this real juicy kind of fruit loops kind of aromatic that we 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 struggle to get that same thing in a couple of the other beers that we brew with that same yeast but i think it's the alignment of it in that particular malt bill just helps it along whereas when we brew it the other way um it's uh it's a much uh rounder and a much uh (laughs) this is a terrible word to use to describe it but kind of a flabbier kind of um, uh, dimension to it. You know, like it, it just, sure. it's, it's not as lean. It's, it, it, ha- it, it just feels like a heavier beer, even though it's not, you know. Um, and uh, we don't get a lot of those chances um, to kind of play what if. Um, and I'd like to do that a little bit more. Um, especially if we're able to increase uh, pub service uh, with uh, more space and more taps. Um, your comment earlier about you know cask beer, uh, we do some cask beer, um, and we do it um, religiously more than a lot of places. But I'd like to see the number of cask beers go up. Sure, um, sure. And uh, so that's pretty high on my personal list. Yeah. Uh- before we get out of here, yeah. what's next uh, for Civil Life? What's on the horizon and what's the future look like for you? Well, um, I think that the answer is showing itself um, in the beer market. Um, you know, like right now, um, I think that uh, beer has been almost uh, solely responsible for the um, meteoric rise of hard seltzer. Um, it's, you know, hard seltzer is something that beer can't be, but everyone wanted beer to be it. (laughs) And it just turns out that it's a different thing. And so now that we've figured that out now, hard seltzer is like going off the roof. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, what, what that looking, looking at that and looking at other things in the market, what, what we're looking at now is diving deeper into what we're already doing rather than trying to do something different. Yeah. trying to do exactly what we're doing but more and uh like you mentioned you know okay check pills eh, maybe we'll step up that game you know um bringing things to a level of a different kind of authenticity but at the same time i don't necessarily want us to just um be the brewery that uh replicates what's already good out there you know like I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's important to not parrot sure. other people as well. So um, we've talked about, you know, trying to increase cask, trying to bring out uh, some life to some styles of beer that are even more lost, um, but probably deserving of at least putting them on a table. Um, but, you know, again, sometimes you do that stuff and it's really meaningful and other times it's a little gimmicky. Um, so, uh, so we'll see where that, where that heads, but I think that would be cool. 
Well, I can't wait to taste what you come up with. Uh, Me too. Uh, you know, before we get out of here, uh, G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Download the Tavor app and get highly rated independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Country Malt Group understands the importance of excellent ingredients. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert that experts trust. Dylan, if people want to learn more about Civil Life Brewing, where do they find you all? Well, physically, uh, you will find us... Uh, down on Holt uh, in the city of St. Louis um, and uh, you know uh, the pubs open Sunday uh, close Monday then Tuesday through Saturday um, on the interweb uh, you can find all this information and uh, uh, directions and all that uh, at thecivillife.com uh, and uh, I'm sure Jake has like an Instagram and stuff like I'm that sure too. sure he does too. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Dylan. Cheers to Civil Life. I'm going to enjoy another pint of some session strength here. Please do. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.